Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Chris Wilzinski. And we cover a lot of territory in this episode, including the class that Chris teaches at Michigan State University, the creation and implementation of master plans, the role a superintendent can play in master plans, some of the work he's done with Golden Age Architects, and some of the apprehensions he had in 2010 when he started his own golf course architecture firm. But before we get going with Chris, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts. So we're glad to have them on board, and we're glad that Chris was able to take some time to join us. Well, Chris, it's awesome to have you on the podcast, and actually... After we get off the phone, you're going to be headed to Michigan State where you teach a class about golf course design and construction to two-year turf students. How did you get involved in that, and how fulfilling is it to work with young people that want to enter the industry? Yeah, thanks, Guy. appreciate the opportunity to be part of this. The opportunity really came about from me just really. I mean, I attended Michigan State, and I studied landscape architecture. But during college, one of the classes I took as an elective, was a turf grass science class. It was just a basic entry-level class. And my professor was Trey Rogers, or Dr. Rogers, and Dr. Rogers has been at Michigan State for a long time. And um, I've just stayed in contact with him all these years and been friendly, and uh, he's had me come in as a guest speaker over the years a few times. And the class that I am teaching has been taught for 30 years, and it's been taught by golf course architects. It was taught by Bruce both the uh, Matthews in Michigan, Bruce and Jerry Matthews, and then it was also taught by Bill Newcomb. Bruce Matthews, who taught it prior to me, this is my second year teaching it, retired, and he recommended me. I'm friendly with Bruce, and Dr. Rogers also recommended me, and that's how it all kind of came together. It was you know, me maintaining that relationship with Dr. Rogers all these years and being involved and then just kind of being in the right position at the right time in my career. It's very fulfilling. Uh, last year I had 11 students. This year I have 24 students, so it's a much bigger class and uh, you know more to manage and and take care of. But it, it's really fun. I mean, I and you know I stand there and I look at these kids and they're all in their you know early 20s and you know they're they're at the beginning of their careers and, and so I'm helping them kind of form or impress upon them how to look at architecture and how to analyze it. And, how to better be prepared for the future. I've told them over and over, I was like, you know, the, you guys are all going to be able to cut grass and mow grass, but what's really going to differentiate you guys is who's going to be the leader, or who are going to be the leaders and the ones that, you know, step up and um, are vocal and, and help their golf courses become better and, uh, you know, stay top of mind with the owner or the, or the membership and uh, just kind of lead and, 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 and the best way to do that is to be educated and understand how these things work. And so what I'm trying to teach these kids is, A, how to look at a golf course, analyze it from an aesthetic architecture perspective, as well as, you know, maintenance, because that's what they have to take care of. But, you know, from my perspective, more from an architectural standpoint. And then I'm trying to help them understand, you know, what does it cost to make improvements? What does it cost to rebuild a bunker or to remove a bunker? What does it cost to take down a tree or to plant a tree? Um, what does it cost to add drainage? and then help them understand how long it takes to implement these things and the process you go through to get something like this approved. So I think it's really valuable to their um, education, their foundation, um, and it's been a lot of fun, a lot, very re- rewarding. We, um, we're we doing a nine-hole master plan at Forest Acres Golf Course, which is one of the Michigan 
State Golf Courses. Today, actually, we're meeting on the golf course and walking it, and we're going to walk it, and this is, the, I think, the third time that we've been out there on the property walking, and I just really talked to them about the things that I see, and um, I, I realize that these kids are not architects. A lot of them can't draw at all. I'm asking them to draw, but I'm not really grading them on their drawing. I'm grading them on their effort and their ability to kind of, like like most classes, just do, do what we're asked to do. Um, but anyways, it's been really, really great experience. How inquisitive are they? Do they ask a lot of questions about the role architecture and maintenance have and how they kind of have to work concurrently to make a golf course successful? Yeah, they do. There's some that are really, you know, have a lot of experience, and then there's some that don't, um, some that don't pay attention during class and either get, are on their phone or doze off. And last year when I, I just on a separate, separate kind of note, last year when I was teaching the class, I, I got frustrated with that. Um, that people weren't all paying attention and engaged, but I guess I just now realize that that's just part of. I, mean, I was probably the same way when I was a student at times. And I just have to accept that, and you know, they're paying money and they get out of it what they want to get out of it. But some are really engaged and ask a lot of questions, and some not so much. But th- they this last year they just finished their internship this last summer, which is part of their two year program, and they all Dr. Rogers places them at great golf courses they're all at like there was one that was at shinnecock and one at national golf links and they all get to go to great golf courses and really see fine architecture and work with some of the best superintendents in the nation um but like i said some of them are very inquisitive and some uh, you know I, I i'm not sure if they're paying attention <laughs> how do you structure the class do you use a lot of examples from your own work and career or do you kind of introduce them to some of the work of the the golden age architects and architects in the eras after that we started with that we started with the kind of the history of golf and golf architecture that was the first class we went through all the not all of them but a lot of the golden age golf course architects and the work that they did and 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 ironically a lot of the courses that these kids were placed at this last summer were golden age architecture courses you know from the 20s through the 40s um but yeah we started with that and then i gave them examples of the master plan work that i've done and how i go about it just to kind of give them a reference and and then from that point on i'm really just trying to get them to look at the golf course and this project that we do there's no budget you know every project that i do there's always a budget but there's no budget because i don't want to stifle creativity like if some kid sees an opportunity to you know change a hole from a par three to a par five and some other hole in a different direction i want them to have the ability to free really think without you know knowing that hey there's only a hundred dollars to spend for example they all know that the reality is that's not how it works but um from a creativity standpoint you know i'm trying to let them have them give them free reign i guess now onto your own work chris you recently completed a nine-year master plan at wanaka country club outside of buffalo the course has been around for a long long time what were the emotions like when you're involved in a project for so long and it finally reaches an end i guess from the the end standpoint it was a excitement that it was done to stand back and look at it and you know we as architects i think all when we step on a piece of property and start to study it and spend a little time to get to know it better develop a vision a vision of what it could be and how it could be better so it's really rewarding at the end to step back and say, hey, God, we had this vision, we had this vision, and you know the vision goes a little left and right at times based upon time and people, money, but all in all, the vision was implemented, and it's very rewarding to stand back and to see that, and it's very satisfying. But at the same time, uh, there's also you know the other emotions, I guess, with 
it was a, it, it was nine years, and it was frustration at times. Most of the work we did was in the shoulder seasons. You know, Buffalo is in a climate that they really have a five to six month golf season, and then the other seasons are snow and more snow. So we <laughs> we always had to work in the shoulder seasons, and we didn't have the best of weather. So you know, there was times where we would get ready to sod, and we'd have rain, and it wouldn't dry out because of the you know temperatures not being consistent with that or warm enough, and so it caused a lot of delays, caused caused a lot of extra costs because we had to sod everything. I mean, if we if we would have shut the golf course down and did it all at one time in one summer, I would imagine we probably would have saved a couple million dollars just in grassing costs and mobilization costs and everything that goes into to building a golf course. There's just a lot of efficiencies when you can do a big project at one time versus stretching it out over a, a long period of time. I guess, you know, the nine-year thing was, you know, <laughs> from my perspective, personally, it was job security at the same time, though. I mean, it was nine years of continual work for me, which was which was really good. And it was really the first job that I had when I started on my own. Um, so it was, you know, it was very from a security standpoint, that was very, that was very nice. The other emotions were just patience. Yeah, I had to be super patient. Um, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things, and I'm not saying we always did things the wrong way, but there could have been more efficient ways to do things. But we just have to be very patient, knowing that the reality is we're going to do this work in the spring, in the fall, and we're not going to have the greatest conditions, and um, you know it, it may not be perfect because we don't have the perfect uh, setting to do the work in. Um, the other thing that I also found with that with that process with the nine year thing is that within a nine year stretch, I as a golf course architect and I'm sure others, my eye evolves. It has evolved. Like what I liked nine years ago isn't exactly the same that I like right now. So, and, and I don't know, you know, if people will see it, but when I look at the shaping of the golf course, there's some differences. There's some differences in the bunkers. We had three different golf course contractors over that nine year period. We did not work with the same contractor the whole period. So we've had different shapers on the property um, that have different intricacies, the way that they do shaping. So you can see some subtleties in the shaping differences. Um, and again, like for me as an architect, my eye change, changes, and I, I would think that most architects would over that period of time. So that was also a factor that, um, you know, if I was to do it again, I, st- I still would recommend, and I always would re- will recommend that we try to do it as, as quickly as we can. You know, if we can do it all in one phase, great. If we need to do two phases, um, nine years is an extreme, but that's the way they had to do it from a money standpoint and not shutting down the golf course. And I guess in closing to that question, it's also very rewarding to know that you can do it that way. It may not be the ideal way to do it, but it can be done that way. We were able to keep the golf course open all those years and never had to close. Members were able to play their golf course. There may have been some disruption at times, but uh, we, I proved that we can do it that way, uh, albeit maybe not the exact way to do it. <laughs> Chris, how much time do you spend creating, tweaking, and enhancing master plans? It takes us. I, di- I just finished a um, 36-hole master plan at Chautauqua Golf Club. Chautauqua is uh, west or even further west in, in New York, uh, closer to the Pennsylvania border. And it took us seven months to complete that master plan. We started in March, and I just gave my final presentation in September, the middle of September. I'd say most of them, though, on average, is six to eight months. Um, when I create a master plan, I, I form a committee within the club, um, and most of my master plan work has been in a private setting. But I usually form a committee. You know, I'll analyze the golf course, meet with the committee, give them my initial thoughts, uh, and then I 
again and get feedback and consensus. And so it's an iterative process. Um, I've done it enough times now that I have kind of a model, I guess, in the way that I like to do it and the way that I think it works best. And But the whole process is involved with, you know, a key group of people from the club, kind of stakeholders. You know, I, I usually like to have the superintendent, the general manager, golf pro, and then key uh people from the membership and, and not all you know single-digit golfers. I want to get high handicappers, mid-handicap, men and women, so that usually we have a nice mix of people on our committee to go through this process from start to finish. But yeah, typically 68 months. The, the tweaking, you had asked, I think, about tweaking the master plan. A lot of that is done, in, in my mind, like in the field. You know, we, we, we define this plan, this vision, through the master planning process. It's a one-dimensional plan. It's not a three-dimensional object that you're able to stare at, look at, you know, from that perspective. So a lot of the tweaking is typically done in the field. Um, uh, the one thing that was interesting about the Wanaka master plan is when we were done with it, it was written into the club's bylaws that this is the plan and we're not going to deviate from this plan. I like that from a continuity perspective with boards because they're always revolving and you have different people and personalities. The one challenge with that, though, is that when we were out in the field, when we, when I had an idea to change something, it was difficult to change it. Uh, we had to go back to the board and get their approval to do it, and if it was a significant change, they had to go back to the membership. So initially, I thought it was a great idea to get something like that adopted, but uh, on the backside, it made it difficult to make changes and tweaks, I guess, through the process. And when I say tweaks, I don't mean like, like rerouting a hole. It was like a bunker in a different location or a tree that, you know, we wanted to take out that wasn't on the master plan, that kind of stuff. But, you know, there, there is tweaking throughout that process. And if you look at the original master plan of Wanaka versus what's in the field, there are, there are, there are differences uh, here and there. Yeah, I guess that kind of led into my next question. And it probably is on a club by club, project by project basis, but how rigid are master plans? I think that they're a, they're a good roadmap. I think they're a roadmap that allows for continuity uh, from one year to the next or from one board to the next or one Greens chairman to the next w- within the club setting. But I don't think they should be so rigid that you you have to follow it exact. And why I say that, again, is that it's the one-dimensional plan versus the three-dimensional. You're there in the field and, and looking at it. Um, when I worked for Arthur Hills, he was very adamant that what we put on paper got built in the field and i have a ton of respect for art he did great work but i just never really saw it that way i saw that you know you, you put good plans together but by no means were we throwing them away but we have to allow for ad- adaptation in the field we have to allow for things to change and evolve based upon what our eye sees and what the current conditions are at that time to me golf architecture is, is still an art you know there's a science part of it but a lot of it in my mind is still art and as an artist you know you want the ability to be able to form your art and create your art and the only way to do that is to have some flexibility and not have it completely rigid and you've been in the business for more than two decades now is that one of the, the biggest changes is that the lead architects are spending more time in the field than maybe when you first got into the business yeah i think so for sure i mean there's a lot of guys golf course architects that are doing their own construction work and, you know, handcrafting the work. So I think there's that influence where some of us that didn't do that are thinking, well, maybe that's the way of the future or maybe that's a way to, you know, have better control of the projects and better control of, of the outcome. But, yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I have a lot of pride in the work that I do and the, the finished product. And 
I kind of want to handcraft it and be intimately involved with it from start to finish. So yeah, I, I definitely spent a lot more time on property than I would have like, you know, at the early part of my career. Not that we didn't, but I, I just think that there's a lot more, um, a lot more, uh, work, uh, to be done to make it better. And that, that happens in the field. Chris, when you get selected to create a master plan for a club, how does that process start after you win the project and you go back to the your office and you're thinking about it what are the early stages like starting process nine out of ten times starts with the golf course superintendent where i'm contacted by the golf course superintendent who really a lot of times in the club setting is frustrated with the revolving boards and the committees and how there's no lack of continuity and and evolution of the golf course and so a lot of the superintendents are the ones that first reach out and realize that they have a need and a need to create this roadmap. So that's that's kind of where it begins in that regard. But once I get started, it it, it really is me spending, initially spending a lot of time on property. I, I, I analogize it to my clients like it's like dating. Um, you know, you're dating somebody and you want to really get to know them and make sure it's a good fit and understand everything about them. And that's really what it is for me when I'm analyzing a golf course. I'm just trying to intimately get to understand that golf course. And the only way to do that is to spend a, t- a lot of time on property. So the first third of like the whole match plan process is me walking the golf course over and over, taking pictures, playing the golf course. I like to play with the committee members. Um, it gives me a chance to see it from their perspective. It gives me a chance to see, you know, how, how, you know, the golf architecture impacts their game and, and how they play it. And, and it gives me a chance to get to know them better on a personal level. But, Again, this, the beginning of it for me is, is really spending a lot of time on the property. And then the other part that's really important at the beginning, too, is kind of defining what is our mission and what are our goals and objectives. And I think that any good project starts with that. You have to start with the foundation of what you're trying to accomplish. And then at the end, we kind of have a checks and balances to make sure we've accomplished those things. But every project, you know, we need to have a mission and we need to have you know, sub-goals and objectives and how we're going to create that mission. What role does the superintendent play in the master plan once the work starts you mentioned what the superintendent maybe would do early in the process and contact you but what's the key to a superintendent successfully helping the implementation of a master plan for his or her club yeah i think it's that's a great question i think the superintendent has the the number one role um very very important role throughout the whole process uh they're the one that's there every day they're the ones that are talking to the membership or the or the patrons of the golf course I, i think that the superintendent's role is is really really important, um, and it's important that they are involved with uh, all aspects of all communication. That they, you know, that we meet together with the board and the superintendents, part of that process, and they understand what we're trying to achieve and create and what the budget is. And um, and I guess from my perspective too, that you know, if we're going to do a master plan, and I, I really feel that the superintendent is the first person that needs to be on board with the whole process because. If we're going to do a match plan and the superintendent doesn't believe in it or doesn't see the need, then it's probably not going to go anywhere because um, he's going to be the one that's helping drive drive the plan forward. So um, I think it's really important that that person's on board and gets the big picture and believes in it. Otherwise, you know, it's probably not going to be very successful. But again, I think the superintendent's the most important part of the whole the whole process. Um, I think it's during construction. You know, it's really important for the communication trust you know him trusting me him trusting or he or she trusting me trusting the contractor working with the contractor being a good partner you know there's a lot
And then there's the aspect of once you know we get something completed and it's turned over to them, there's a lot of work at, on their end to grow it in. Uh, there's the watering aspect and a lot of long hours and the superintendents that are, that are successful are the ones that really dedicate themselves to these projects and uh, r- really are involved. And, and I've done one's projects before, renovation jobs, where the where the superintendent, like, you know, he's done it at the end of his shift and he just leaves. And I, I just think that's a bad way to go when you're trying to water in a golf course and grow in new turf grass. And I, I just think that the, the really good superintendents are the ones that are, you know, there a lot and overseeing the whole process until it's grown in and uh, secure, I guess. What is it like when the superintendent changes in the middle of implementation of a master plan? And how do you handle that as the architect? It's not good. Like at, at Wanaka, the superintendent that was there, he retired uh, during the middle of this year. We were more or less done with the project, so it wasn't a huge setback by any means. But I, I think that you know, if there is a change uh, during during the process, that there needs to be consistency. They need to a understand what's happening, what's going on. Uh, they need to be committed to the project. Uh, they need to you know just really fully engage themselves in, into the project. Yeah, it's just, it's just not ideal for the superintendent to, to not be there because, like I said, he's the eyes and ears of the project and part of this whole process and the one that's helping make, make this, this project great. And, but I, I guess my, the one thing I would like to say, though, about that is that you know, maybe that superintendent wasn't the right person. Maybe he wasn't the right fit. And I'm always an advocate of getting the right person on the bus and the right person for the job and somebody that's passionate about it and cares and really you know, wants to do well and, and exceed expectations. So sometimes, you know, if, if the superintendent did change, maybe it wasn't the right fit. The, the other thing that's challenging about superintendents, too, is that, you know, they may have worked with another architect at one time or another contractor, and everybody has, you know, subtleties about the ways that they do their work. And, you know, the way that I do my work is probably going to be different than another golf course architect. And the same thing with contractors. So it's, I think from a superintendent's perspective, it's understanding that, you know, not to be so set in our ways that it has to be done this way. It's not, you know, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray and just be able to kind of evolve on the fly and learn. And, but, but like, like I said, the communication is really the most important part. Is, you know, if we can communicate well and make sure we're all working toward the same goal, then it's usually pretty successful. How awesome is it working with a superintendent who has a zest for golf course architecture and a passion for the history of the golf course? It makes it really fun because there's just a lot of great dialogue conversations about that, and it just makes it a lot of fun because you know they're talking our language, and and it's just a lot of fun talking about that and talking about other golf courses that they may have gone to and things that they saw and sharing stories about architecture and other golf courses, and it, it's it's really cool because I um, you know there's the aspect that they have to do of maintaining the grass and taking care of the golf course, but then there's also the architectural side of it. And it's really fun working with somebody that appreciates that and has like a true understanding of it and appreciation and, and is willing to preserve that going forward. Um, the last thing I would ever want is to do something, you know, per our vision and and then the superintendent come in and changes it based, based upon like what he thinks is right. I, I really respect the guys that see it as, you know, that this is what we created and we're going to do our best to preserve this and enhance it for the future. I think that's really important versus, you know, doing their own thing. And I've had that happen before where you've done something, you go back and they've changed it. Like they didn't communicate with you. It didn't 
share with you why, and that's really frustrating. Your father was a golf course superintendent, right? Yeah, he was. He was early on in his career, and then most of his career he um, sold irrigation products and then pump stations. A lot of it was pump stations for for the most part. How did that shape you, having a uh, a father who dealt with multiple sides of the business, including the irrigation side, which is obviously a side you have to work very closely with in your job now? Yeah, good good question. I think from my, my perspective, like growing up as a kid and seeing my dad working, I, I first and foremost like learned how important hard work is. You know, I saw my dad firsthand working, um, and he always had the desire to exceed expectations and the jobs that he did and the work that he did. So I, that really formed me from a work ethic perspective um, in, in how I kind of view work. And I, I just see it that the, you know, the harder, harder and smarter you work, the more successful you can be. And I've always tried to embody that. A lot of, you know, the work that my dad did was with pump stations and irrigation systems, and they're really the heart of the, you know, the pump station is the heart of the irrigation system. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a good pump station, you're not going to have good coverage and efficiency of running running those things. And the bottom line with all that irrigation and pump station, though, is that we have to give the resources and the tools to the superintendent to succeed. Um, if, if the pump station is old and antiquated and doesn't work, it's going to take, you know, 18 hours to irrigate the golf course and wasting a lot of water. So, you know, he always stressed that you got to have the right tools and the right resources. And unfortunately, a lot of golf courses, the irrigation is underground, out of sight, and they don't think it's a big priority. But there's so many golf courses that, like, I've been working at Groves Eel Golf and Country Club. Right now, it's an old Donald Ross golf course. And they have old irrigation system, and they're constantly battling with leaks and broken pipe and issues in that regard. And uh, you know, so if you don't have the right tools and resources, it's really hard to succeed and, and do well. So I think it's you know, important to have a good irrigation system. And, and then like the last thing about my dad was, you know, he was a true salesman um, and he was a hustler. I mean, he was, he was always beating down doors and trying to get work. And I, I learned that from him. And, you know, my role as a owner of a company is I have to find work and sell the work. And my dad taught me how important that was. And it really was about really, relationships, maintaining relationships. And my dad was always stopping and seeing people and calling people and just maintaining those relationships and being top of mind. And those are all the things that my dad taught me and I've kind of watched, you know, throughout his career. And so it's been really cool to, and we talk a lot. We share a lot of stuff about, because we, you know, we're, we've been in the same profession our whole careers. And so we have a lot of commonalities in that regard. So it's really, it's really neat. Is he retired or does he still work in the industry? Well, he retired from Watertronics selling pump stations, and, and then he started an airification, a deep-time airification business. Now he has two machines. He's probably busier now than he was when he was actually working. Um, he's built a very successful business with airification uh, all throughout Michigan and Ohio and Indiana, so he's working and probably working harder now than he did before. And not only was your dad a big influence on your career, but the early phases of your career, you worked in the office of Arthur Hills, who you mentioned earlier. What was it like working in those offices in the 1990s and early 2000s? There were a lot of architects around, a lot of projects. What did you learn during that phase of your career from being in that environment? I really learned everything. Art was a, art and Steve Forrest were a huge influence on me. I, I started working for Arthur and Steve when I was uh, 17 years old. So in 1987, I was a senior in high school. And my dad got me a job there because he knew Art and Steve, and uh, I had interest in studying 
architecture of some sort, and my dad get, helped me get a job there. I was, you know, a basic, uh, you know, I, I did everything when I started there. I picked up sticks in the yard, went and got car washes for Art's car, oil changes, did some drafting, took out trash, burned trash, whatever it was, I kind of was the grunt that took care of things and slowly started learning the business. But Steve and Art were, you know, very influential. Um, Art's way was kind of, you know, I don't know if he would, sit down and talk to you about things it was more like do it my way and that's the right way to do it but i did learn a lot you know good and bad from that art was you know at that time in the prime of his career um and the fun thing about working there during that period is that we were busy there was you know it was the era when there was a lot of golf courses being built and probably somebody asked me the other day like what was the biggest challenge and it really was like fulfilling the work we had so much work and it was so busy it was hard at times to keep up with the work um, we had a great team. Uh, we, we had really talented, successful people that worked for our team, and uh, it, it was just a lot of fun. We had a great, great group of guys that worked there. Um, a lot of work, like I said, and a great time in our industry to be to be building golf courses. We usually every year would go on these team golf trips. We went to all, the whole office. I think there was fourteen of us went to Scotland one year. Um, we went up to northern Michigan another year and played a bunch of golf courses. So we did that on a regular basis just to kind of be united and have fun. And um, But it, it was a great time to work in that industry, and Art was a great, you know, teacher. And he, Art was a good architect, great architect, but he was a really solid business person. He was a great salesman, and he did a, an amazing job of running jobs, managing clients, managing expectations, and uh, seeing that through and that's probably the biggest thing that I learned from him is, just, him is just how to run the business side of our golf course architecture and how to be a successful business person. And then in 2010, you got on your own. What were the emotions like that? How nervous were you about that and how excited were you about that? Well, I was really nervous because it wasn't planned. It wasn't something that I said, okay, next year I'm going on my own. Um, you know, our, our industry, like a lot of golf course architects, really fell apart overnight. Um, we went from 2008 where we had probably, I think we had 21 employees at Arts Office. We were one of the bigger golf course architecture firms. By 2010, it was down to six people, I think. So literally within a two-year period, we shed, you know, 70% of our workforce. I was a partner with the firm, and um, there just wasn't enough work for everybody that was was there. And so slowly we all kind of left, and uh, some guys left and went into other landscape type businesses or industries and some people totally got out of the business but i always intended to go on my own and uh always intended to you know to do this full-time for the rest of my life and so i was kind of propelled into it it wasn't really a choice so my choice was i guess i either find something else to do or i uh try to make this work and i really wanted to make it work so it was but it was really nervous or anxiety whatever whatever word you want to use because a there wasn't a lot of work um Thank God when I left, and I left on great terms. Uh, Art and I worked together on a couple of jobs. He gave me a couple of jobs that were jobs that I sold, and he just essentially handed them to me and wrote letters to our clients and asked them if I could continue on. So I had some work, um, but not a lot of work, so it was very stressful in that regard. Uh, but I got really lucky. In 2012, I got hired by Taylor Morrison, a home builder in Florida, and we did two new golf courses in 2012 and 2013 
Um, and there wasn't a lot of new golf courses being built. I think maybe in that year there was maybe 10 golf courses that had opened or 12 or something, and I had two of them. And as I told people in the past, I, I felt like I won the lottery or something for golf, golf course architecture because here's this guy that's just starting out and all of a sudden gets two new golf courses thrown into his lap. And, and that kind of propelled things from there. Um, but a lot of the work is still master plans that I'm doing now because there's just not a lot of new golf courses being built. But, yeah, so it was super scary. But at this point, eight years later, nine years later, it's it's really rewarding to know that, you know, I've made it, I can do it. There's work out there, and um, every year, you know, it keeps getting better. So I'm glad that I did it. It just wasn't, you know, wasn't by choice at that moment, and I just tried to make the best of it. What is it like being a partner in a business to all of a sudden running your own business? You were a one-person operation at the time. How, how tricky was that, learning the business side and really only having yourself to lean on? Yeah, not easy. Um, when I worked for Arthur Hills, we had a team. We had we had marketing people. We had salespeople. I, I did a lot of sales, but we had, I had a sales support staff. Um, and I had a team of people. Every job was a three-person team. It would be like Art, myself, and a junior associate. So I had people that were doing the production work and um, just a really a great team that allowed us to really be successful and do do well. Um, on your own, I don't have that team. I do, I, I do everything. I sell the jobs. I service the jobs. I draw the jobs. I do my own computer work. I, uh, I do all the invoicing and accounting and follow-up and all that stuff. So it's it's a challenge. There's a lot of hats that I have to wear, and I'm not good at all those things. I'm, I think I'm really good at the architecture side and maintaining the relationships and pretty good at selling, but there's some stuff that as a business owner you have to do that's not that fun sometimes. And so that that's the challenge. And it, you get warped in sometimes too. There's just so many, like when, when I'm super busy traveling to, to jobs to oversee construction or develop a master plan, you, know, you end up traveling quite a bit and uh, you, you have to find time to do the marketing and the sales, but some weeks, months, there's just not a lot of time to do that because you're so busy doing the work and completing the work. So it's a cycle that you have to stay on top of and just keep filling that pipeline with, with new opportunities. But um, yeah, it's not easy. It's, it's, uh, we were, I was kind of in some regards spoiled with the team that we had and the resources we had when I worked for Arthur Hills. And so it, it's, it's more challenging, but at the same time, it's very rewarding, rewarding knowing that I can do it and I have done it and, um, that, you know, I'm responsible for the, for the work and the outcome and the success, I guess. It's a very competitive field golf course architecture, but there's also some congeniality in it too. Are there any people that you can go to when you're, you need another set of eyes on things or do you just keep it all internal or are there some external people that have really helped you out in this period where you've now uh, been running your own firm? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah, there are a few people. Uh, Drew Rogers is one. Uh, Drew and I worked together. Drew was with Arthur Hills and Drew was on his own. Drew, Drew and I, on the same day, we're both, for lack of better words, you know, pushed out of the firm. You know, again, we were partners and the partnership dissolved and he and I were both in the same day pushed out or, you know, removed, I guess, from our partnership. And, uh, but anyways, Drew and I talk a lot. We run things off of each other. He's been a great resource. We've known each other for 25 years, I think, now, and um, he's built a very successful business on his own as well. And there's a couple other people um, that are good golf course architect friends. Uh, Todd Quintno is a good friend of mine. He and I talk uh, every so 
often about things, from the, whether it's business or architecture. I like Todd a lot. And then uh, Kevin um, Atkinson. Kevin is based in Colorado, and he and I are good friends, and we talk every so often about architecture and clients and business. And so, yeah, there's some people that I surround myself with that I confide in and talk to. Um, my wife is another one. She has a good business mind and even a better marketing mind. And so, you know, she helps with that kind of stuff. And then I do have one guy that helps me with, like, the technical side of things that used to work at Arthur Hills. Um, his name is Joel Hornicle, and he helps me with a lot of the CAD work. And uh, when I get super busy, like, I, I'm doing another new golf course in Florida right now, and he's helped me with all the technical drawings and CAD drawings. And so he's a great resource, too, when I need when I need him. Just looking at some of the places you've worked recently, you've worked at some really cool classic clubs, and you've also had a chance to work on the work that was originally designed by architects such as Willie Watson, Lankford and Moreau, and Donald Ross. How much do you enjoy that work? I know it's a little bit different than building a new golf course in Florida, but how much do you enjoy learning about these uh, classic architects and working on the land where they once worked? Yeah, I, I really like it. It's been great experience experiences so far. Um, if we could just back up for a second. When I worked for our hills, majority of the work, 90% of it was probably 95% of it was new golf course constructions because there was so many golf courses. But I did do some master planning renovation work. Typically in that era, though, we weren't really looking to restore or enhance what was there. We were really looking to kind of change the whole thing and put our own stamp and essentially redo the entire golf course, you know, from scratch. Um, and, and in today's world, it's just there, that does happen, but it's just not reality. Um, most of these clubs are just looking to enhance and tweak what they have and make it better. So in the last few years, these have been you know, my first opportunities really to study these golf course architects and, and the work that they've done and to really submerge myself in, in that type of work. And I've really enjoyed it. Um, the work at Wanaka and Buffalo, it was a Willie Watson golf course. We don't have any plans, per se, that we were able to find. There's old pictures and fo aerial photographs, um, but the greens at Wanaka are all original greens, and that's probably the best the best aspect of, of the work there. We didn't truly try to uh, restore that golf course back to the way it was as far as the bunkering um, because of the fact that drainage was, was the big project there, was trying to improve the drainage, so we added new bunkers and tees, but... The greens, we left the greens alone. We tried to uh, expand the greens back to their original positions, but the greens there are really, really neat. I played a, another golf course that Willie Watson had designed, uh, Belvedere, up in Charlevoix, Michigan. It was, in, and they were both done about the same time, within a couple years span of each other in the, in the 1920s, and very similar as far as the green green contours and greens. So it was, it was really neat to see that. And that's the one thing that I I see about that era of of, of architecture is the greens. I just think the greens were a lot better than you know, some of the stuff that we're doing in today's world. And I think part of it is because we're so limited on um, the steepness that we can get because of, of, of the speeds of the greens. Uh, you know, people are demanding 11, 12 on the stint meter versus when those greens were built in the 20s and the 30s that had really neat contours and uh, cupping areas that were divided by you know, ridges and mounds and swales and things like that. They were at a speed of, you know, maybe six or seven or who knows what, but they weren't that fast and they were able to create these really cool contours and undulations. And in today's world, 
it's hard to do that unless you create a massive, you know, huge green. If you if you can have a green that's ten thousand square feet, and then you can create some neat uh, surface undulations within that green. But if you have a green that's five thousand square feet, it's hard to do that because you you don't you only have so much room for flat cupping areas. So I see that as one of the biggest challenges, and I. I think that the the greens that those guys were building in that era were, were just really phenomenal greens. Like I, I've been working at Grove Deal Golf and Country Club, and it's a pure Donald Ross golf course. He spent a lot of time there, and the greens are amazing. But some of them are just too steep for today's world, and it's it's a shame because they're just really interesting features within the greens that that make make those golf courses great. The, the work that I've been doing at Blyfield with Langford and Monroe, and those guys were I think the first kind of architects that started moving soil and creating big, bold features where they would raise the greens up and have deep, steep bunkers. And so it was kind of neat to see that and the work that they did um, there. And the work that Ross did and has done, and I, I've also been working at Chautauqua Golf Club. That's a Ross course, but we, we, we haven't found any indication that Ross was ever there. And we have very detailed plans that we actually found for every green and every hole, but some of it was never truly implemented or I guess put into place in the field because uh, when I look at what's on paper versus what's there I just don't see it um, and I realize that golf courses evolve but I don't think that his plans were ever fully implemented and I think that's the case with a lot of that stuff from that era is it's hard to know a who did the work uh, was the architect there not there um, and then how much has it evolved over time because it, it, it all evolves uh, people you know some some clubs, some some clients are really set on restoring it back to the way that it was. But how do you know exactly the way what it was? Because uh, there's so many things that have changed or evolved over time. And I've always felt that if Donald Ross was to come back to Chautauqua Golf Club or Roseville Golf and Country Club, would he see it the exact same way that he saw it in 1920 when he did it originally? Would, would he want to make modifications and enhancements and kind of take advantage of today's world and golfers needs i think i think so i don't think that anybody would ever come back and say we have to do it exactly the way it was done before because that's the right way i think that we're always going to see it as opportunity to enhance it to make it better and tweak it but still keeping in mind the overall design uh philosophy or, or the intent of what we're trying to do within the whole and that's how i see architecture when i work at these courses is what was the original intent? Like, what was the strategy? Where were they trying to get people to hit it to? And what angle was the preferred angle? If we can maintain those things and then tweak, you know, things within that, I think we're we're doing a pretty good job. Last question, Chris. You've gotten to do some neat projects here the last few years. Who's an architect from any era that you haven't had a chance to work on a course that was designed by that you would really like to work on a course of his in the future? Yeah, I think the answer is two part. What, the first one would be Alistair McKenzie. Um, I just think that the work that he did was just so bold and exciting and artistic, and uh, the bunkers were so artistic and beautiful. And the, the University of Michigan golf course here in Ann Arbor is a McKenzie course. Uh, I've played there several times. I've played Crystal Downs up in northern Michigan several times. I've never played Augusta, but I've been to Augusta a couple times. Uh, and I've never played Cypress Point, but I've been to Cypress Point. And, but when I look at the work, it's just so bold and exciting and stimulating and but i think he was like the true artist i mean his his work and the bunkering and the way that he put bunkers and the way that he formed greens and 
I just think it would be really neat to work on one of his projects and uh, try to, you know, enhance the artistry of it and, and, and that aspect of it. And then as far as, like, modern-day architects, I think Pete Dye. It would be really neat to work with Pete or work with on stuff that he did just because he was so innovative and, again, so bold and interesting. And I love the strategy and the angles that Pete creates and, and I see golf course architecture that way too. And it'd be neat to, uh, I've been doing some consulting work at Radrick farms, which is a Pete Dye golf course uh, here in Ann Arbor. And just really appreciate his work. Um, Radrick farms is one of the first courses he did. And it's, it kind of feels like a Donald Ross golf course. It, it doesn't look like some of the stuff that Pete's done most recently, but it's a, a really solid golf course that, um, you know, withstood the test of time and is still very relevant today. Well, Chris, this was awesome having you on the podcast. I know we covered a lot of stuff here in the last uh, 45 minutes, so it was great to be able to do this. Good luck with the the class and the projects you're working on. And when you make your treks to western New York, make sure you stay warm. Thank you. I appreciate it, Guy. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a lot of fun, and uh, I will stay warm. It's kind of chilly today, so back to back to the jackets, it looks like.